0: the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message,
1: here is our teacher. The legend is told of a ship that rocked back and forth in the waves of the ocean. Its sails were torn, the mast was spliced together, the hull leaked because the planks making up the hull were decayed and they were eaten up by worms. Now somehow this boat, it managed to stay afloat. It had been sailing for quite a long time. It had been loaded with food and medicine. And it was sent out to find the people and help the people of a lost colony. And at the front of this ship, the old man in charge sat up on top of a large pile of rope with his watery eyes trying to pierce through the fog. Down below, men, women, and children sat in groups to eat. Their food was basic, but their health was good for being at sea such a long time. Suddenly, the old man shouted out, we're here, we're here, we're here, we've made it to land. But the response wasn't what he expected. The people on board just said, land, what land? No one got up, no one cared. And so the old man explained they'd finally reached the land that they were first sent to reach so long ago when the voyage had begun. So he started to work and get the supplies ready, but no one was helping. He wondered at first if no one hurt him because the people they'd been sent to help were only a few hundred yards away, but they needed to hurry because the people were hungry, the people were sick. Now time on this ship allowed the people to form different groups, one group on board known as the spectators, they got out their lawn chairs and they started thinking that this would be great to watch. Now another group known as the steamrollers, they wanted to push around the spectators for being lazy. Then there was a group known as the squabblers. You know what they liked to do? They thought they had the answers. All they wanted to do was fight with the other people on board. The pity party group, well they were miserable. They were absolutely miserable. They just sat back during the whole thing and sat there and complained that nothing ever went their way. And then the drifters, the group known as the drifters, they wanted to let the current of the vessel take them somewhere else, somewhere more interesting, somewhere that they could feel the spirit. One of the men from the spectator said, I'm sure we'd all like to help these people, but as you can see, there's hardly enough food and medicine here to take care of us, to take care of our children. Besides, said one of the women, we don't know what kind of people they are. Who knows what might happen if we landed and went among them? This thought, the old man staggered back as if he'd been struck across the face. He could barely get the words out, but it was for them that this voyage began in the first place so long ago. It was for them that this ship was built, for them that the food and medicine were stowed aboard. And one of the younger men from the drifters spoke up and said, yes, old man. I've heard many tales of what our purpose is, but with so many different stories on why we are here, how can we really be sure that this is what we're supposed to do? Why risk the medicine and the food and maybe even our own lives on something that may or may not be a part of our purpose for being here? Well, this idea started to take off. People from the different groups, they started shouting, he's right, he's right. It sounds like a church committee, doesn't it? But look, the old man said, it's all very, very simple. As far as the food is concerned and as far as there not being left enough for them and for us, most of what we have left is meant for seed. And if we go ashore and plant it, there will be more than enough for all of us. And if you want to consider why we are here in the first place, why not? consult the logbook. It's all there written upon line upon line. It's written right down in the logbook, and it would only take a minute to find out the truth if you really wanted to. Well, a man that was the leader of the spectators stood up with a frown on his face and a look of deep thought. He said this, Perhaps the old man is right. But at any rate, the old man's suggestion merits some investigation. What I propose is this. Let us select from amongst ourselves a representative committee, which will go through a study of it, determine if we should land and if we should help these people. Now everybody thought this was a great idea, except for the old man. The old man started backing away from them. He could still hear the cries of the people on shore, begging for help, begging for food, begging for medicine. And with horror in his eyes, he grabbed his chest in pain, realizing that they had no intention of helping the people on shore. That their proposal was just another way to stall, another way to get out of having to do anything to help those people on shore. And in his dying breaths, he was able to get out a few last words. He warned them that the seed was meant to be shared, that the seed was meant to be planted, should they keep the seed to themselves, it would spoil and it would run out. And if the medicine they had wasn't used, it would simply grow old and become ineffective. And with these last spoken words, the old man died. And over the coming days and weeks, the ship just sat there anchored off of shore. This committee searched and searched the logbook, hoping to come to some conclusions, hoping to write down their ideas about their purpose. All the while, the supplies did run out And the people on shore cried out in hunger as they died from starvation. Now, some on board the ship even had to place cotton in their ears at night so they could sleep without hearing the people suffering. But no one on board this ship knew what to do. Now, that is about the most depressing picture I can paint. But I'm not too sure it's that much different in the church today, where people have a lack of understanding of the purpose of the mission. Because churches today are becoming social clubs instead of what they're meant to be, the called out people of God. You see, the social club mentality that exists today means that very little is accomplished within the professing church of Jesus Christ. What is God's plan for the church? What is God's plan for the nation of Israel? Why are we even here? You see, the church in Acts 15 was wrestling with some of these issues where the church was debating if the gospel of Christ should be shared with the Gentiles. But now, thankfully, in our passage before us this morning, we see the leadership at Jerusalem fighting the good fight for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's remind ourselves of where we're at in Acts 15. The Judaizers had made their way to the church of Antioch, teaching faith in Christ plus what? Circumcision. Faith in Christ and the keeping of the laws of Moses in order to be saved. Paul and Barnabas, they wouldn't tolerate this. They wouldn't tolerate a gospel of false works. The issue was then taken to the church of Jerusalem, where the elders of the church of Jerusalem, the apostles of Christ, and the representatives of the church of Antioch came together to discuss the issue. And Peter had told this council of men, if you remember, that the issue, it was already settled. It was already done. God had clearly made known his will. God had already given the Gentiles the spirit of God. The case was closed. The issue was settled. The matter was done. Because this testified that God had accepted the Gentiles on the same basis as that of the Jews. Jews and Gentiles alike are accepted by grace through faith. Barnabas and Paul moved the discussion further by testifying of the clear work of God among the Gentiles. So we begin again this morning by picking up the words of James, starting in verse 13 of Acts 15. And notice how James takes center stage. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, Ben and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, who is this? This is James, the brother of Jesus. Paul referred to James as one of the pillars of the church, not an apostle of Christ. He was not one of the 12. In fact, during the ministry of Christ, James didn't even believe Jesus is the Messiah. But now he had become the spokesman. He was now the leader of the church at Jerusalem until he was stoned to death under the orders of the high priest in 62 A.D., James was building off of what Peter had told them, but notice what he says. This was an act of God that Peter had already told them. Peter had already testified to them that God had visited the Gentiles to take out a people for his name. Now hear me carefully on this. The whole world will not be converted. God is calling out of the Gentile world a people for his name. Do you hear that in the text? Do you see it in the text? The whole world is not going to be converted. It'd be great if everybody came to faith in Christ. It's not going to happen. God is calling out of the Gentile world a people for his name. And this means, listen, the church is the called out assembly of believers gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. God has never at any time converted everyone. He's never at any time converted every single person, but everywhere he has called out some. And it means this, if you've been called out, it means you didn't earn it. If you've been called out, you didn't earn it. Notice the wording in verse 14. God was taking out of the Gentiles a people for his name. Now I think it startled some of the people there. I think it had to just shock them to the core because for centuries the Jews, the Jewish people, they had carried this title. We are the people. We are the people of God. And they had the title of a people for his name. But even without the completed canon, even without the New Testament, they didn't want to just go on experience. It could be backed up with the word of God. And this is what James says in verse 15. He says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. So track with me here. Simon Peter had brought up that God settled the issue by the outpouring of his spirit. James jumps in and says in the conversation, and he adds to it, saying that this was not just the outpouring of the spirit of God to the Gentiles. It was the very fact that God himself spoke about this in his written word. You see, what was the church doing? The church was going back to the logbook. The church was going back to the word of God to see if it was true that God had a plan to accept the Gentiles. But notice with me what James did not say. James didn't say a couple things. He didn't say that the salvation of of the Gentiles was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He was just saying they agreed, meaning the predictions made by the prophets of a future Gentile salvation, they harmonize with the present salvation of Gentiles apart from first converting to the Jewish faith. Does that make sense? God is calling out people to himself directly through grace. And James was quoting from Amos 9, just one of many, many examples from the prophets. And the big idea, if you want the cliff note version, the big idea of that text is that Amos spoke of the coming restoration of Israel that God, God himself will bring about. You see, it's telling us that the house of David, it will be rebuilt and the kingdom is going to be restored to glory. Edom and all the nations over which David once ruled will once again be gathered into Israel. You see, the context of that passage is the second coming of Christ. It's the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom. The Judaizers did not understand how the Gentiles and the Jews related to one another in the church. They couldn't figure it out and how the church fit into God's promise to establish a kingdom for Israel. The Old Testament declared both the salvation of the Gentiles and the future establishment of the glorious kingdom of Israel. It declared both, but it didn't explain how they would relate to one another. It didn't explain how everybody would get along the legalists in the church in Acts were jealous. They were jealous for both the future glory of Israel and the past glory of Moses and the law. Here's what James was saying. He was saying God's people in the future will consist of not just one group, two groups of people, not just one. There will be a restored nation of Israel. Gathered around them will be a group of Gentiles, a remnant of men who will share in the messianic blessings of the kingdom of God. But they will continue to be Gentiles without the need to first become Jews. You see, right now the church is center stage, but God's program for the church does not cancel out his prophetical program for the nation of Israel. Does that make sense? God's program for the church does not cancel out his prophetical program for the nation of Israel. And Paul told us all of this in Romans 9 through 11. See, God has always had a plan for the church and God has always had a plan for the nation of Israel. Now watch our quote in the next three verses. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are already called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things known to God from eternity are all his works. Now the text of Amos that James was pulling from is all about the millennial reign of Christ. It's a wonderful text. This is after the tribulation. So fast forward in your thinking. This is after the tribulation. This is after the second coming of Christ when the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings will sit on his throne in Jerusalem and he will rule the earth. Now Amos, he predicted a time coming when God would sift the nation of Israel among the nations. Amos predicted the tribulation in verses 8 through 10 of Amos 9. Then comes the verses that James quoted predicting, predicting the time when the Messiah will set up his kingdom. He will establish his kingdom on earth and he will fully restore the nation of Israel the tabernacle of David will be built again, meaning the kingdom of God will be established exactly as promised in the Old Testament in the Davidic covenant. Amos predicted in chapter 9 that the rebuilding of Israel will be as it was in days of old, meaning the nation will be restored as a physical kingdom on earth, and the Gentiles will be brought to the knowledge of the Lord. And the point, the point here that James is driving at with verse 17 in our text is that the Gentiles will be saved as what? Gentiles. They will be saved as Gentiles. Here's the idea. The present inclusion of the Gentiles in the church is consistent with God's promise to Israel through the prophet Amos. The present salvation of Gentiles without them having to first convert to Judaism is consistent with the future plan of God for both Israel and the Gentiles. God is working out his plan. So as you see things happen in the news, don't panic. God is working out his plan. Israel, God's covenant people have been set aside as a nation because why? They rejected the Messiah. God is now taking out a people made of Jews and Gentiles right now to make up the church of Jesus Christ. And when the Lord completes his work, the Lord will come back a second time. This will be a time of blessing for the whole entire world. Because at the second coming of Christ, the remnant of Jews with faith in Christ will go into the kingdom, right along with a remnant of believing Gentiles true Israel in that day with faith, not what we see today, not what we see today. Israel, along with believers around the world from the nations at the second coming of Christ, the Gentiles that survived the tribulation, they will turn to the Lord and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth just as the waters cover the sea. You see, at that time, it's not going to be just a remnant. At that time, it's not going to be just a remnant. At that time, it will not just be some called out from among the nations. It will be the people of the world. Isaiah 65 predicted this. It says, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. And again, Isaiah 66, verse 23, all flesh in that day shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. You see, in verse 16, James is letting the Hebrew people know that God, including the Gentiles in salvation, did not do away with God's plan for Israel. Because even though Israel has been set up on a shelf, if you will, all of the kingdom prophecies will still have a literal future fulfillment. Just as they were literally fulfilled the first time, Christ's first coming, they will be fulfilled regarding his second coming. Don't do away with the second coming of Christ. It's only half the story. And that is why the words in verse 16 refer to the return of Christ. And then we have this beautiful prophecy of the rebuilding of the house of David. Now this will be the accomplishment of that which was announced to Mary when she was told of Jesus. It said this, it said in Luke 1, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest, And watch this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. You see, the kingdom of God, it's not just you hear this taught all the time today, that it's just God reigning and ruling in your heart. No, there's going to be a literal, physical kingdom promised in scripture all throughout the word of God. God's promising he's going to restore his kingdom. God's going to restore the nation of Israel. But in the millennial reign of Christ, Gentiles will be in the kingdom without first having to convert to the Jewish faith. Gentiles will come to salvation without becoming part of Israel. Now, we know this because Zechariah speaks to this. Zechariah 8 speaks of the coming time when Jerusalem will be the center of all the worship of the Lord. Zechariah 8, starting with verse 20. "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, "'People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. "'The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, "'Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord "'and seek the Lord of hosts. "'I myself will also go.'" yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Now pay close attention to verse 23 in this text. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. It's going to be a great day. During the millennial reign of Christ, Gentiles from around the world, greatly outnumbering the remnant of Jews that survived the tribulation, will make the trip to Jerusalem to worship Jesus Christ. Praise God. The Jews at this time will be messengers for Christ, physically leading Gentiles to him. Now, this was the point that James was making back in Acts 15. This was how much these guys knew the word of God. They knew the Old Testament. And he's quoting from this in the book of Amos. And he's saying, hey, the future of Jews and Gentiles, it's together. It is together worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And by simple point of reasoning, if the Gentiles in the future will not need to become Jewish proselytes, then there's simply no reason for them to become Jewish proselytes in the present age. That's his point. See, Peter had shown them this before at the home of Cornelius, that salvation for the Gentiles was by grace through faith. James had shown the council that in the future it will be by grace through faith. And what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that in their present circumstance, salvation for both Jews and Gentiles was by grace through faith. God's salvation was going out to the Gentiles apart from the keeping of the law. The issue of redemption and inclusion of the Gentiles into the body of Christ, it was settled, it was done. And I think the point of verse 18 is that none of this took God by surprise. God knew his plan for Israel. God wasn't shocked when they rejected him. God wasn't shocked when the people didn't want anything to do with him. He had a plan. He had a plan for Israel from the beginning. He knew their rejection. He knew his plan for the nations. He even knew about the angels that would fall. He knew it would all happen and he has a plan. See, God, in his sovereign plan, used the unbelief of Israel to usher in the church age. God was working out his plan from eternity past. Who were they to oppose the work of God? So notice what James says about this in verse 19, about Gentiles coming into the body of Christ. He says, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Henry Morehouse, show of hands, anybody know who this guy was? A famous preacher back in the 1800s, he told the story once of a lady who said to him, I can't see how a person who has broken just one of the commandments can be as bad as another who has broken five or maybe even all ten. Well, Henry tried to explain to her that God really only has given one law, but with many different parts and at first he tried to explain it to her by showing her his watch and telling her that if you counted all the parts and you would find many that would be there and if you just ruined one simple little part in the watch the other parts would remain untouched but the watch would still be broken it would no longer run that didn't help this woman she didn't get the point so he said let me say it like this Suppose you were hanging over a cliff, and you were suspended by a chain with 10 links hanging down. And if someone took a hammer, and they went through, and they smashed all 10 links, where would you go? Well, she understood this. She said, to the bottom, of course, right down to the bottom of the canyon. So then he said to her this. He said, what if only one link was broken? Then what would happen? She gasped, because she thought, hey, this would be just as bad. She would still fall. She would still be killed. You see, and then at that point, instantly she got the truth. She grasped the truth of James 2.10, which says this, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. You see, if we have to be saved by keeping the law, then we're all doomed we're all doomed. Every single one of us, we're doomed. But thankfully, and here's the importance of Acts 15, thankfully in these verses, God confirmed the gospel of grace. And that is why James declared here in verse 19, he said, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. See, having one solid link in a broken chain still means the whole chain. The whole chain is broken. It's got to be by grace it's got to be by grace through faith in Jesus Christ don't add anything to it it's interesting to see in Acts 15 the different personalities of the men involved that come out in this text in our last study we saw in Galatians Paul made clear with a passionate letter that this was absolutely a false gospel that needed to be stamped out Peter passionately had stated that this issue was already settled James answer was pretty much the same but a little more subdued, a little more controlled in his response. It was his judgment as the spokesman for the leadership of the church in Jerusalem that they should not be a burden to the Gentiles turning to the gospel by adding circumcision and the laws of Moses. But how would they communicate all this to the churches? James suggests that they write to him. But look at what he tells them. He says this. He says, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every sabbath now put the brakes on right here at this point in the text what just happened because there's an interesting thing that just happened here james had just concluded that the gospel is by grace not by keeping the law and now he's suggesting to tell the churches to watch what they eat so what just happened what just happened in the text At this point, it was just the opinion of James. But we see when we get down to verse 29, we see the entire council agreed with this. See, James was essentially putting forth that the Gentiles that came to faith in Christ should abstain from things polluted by idols. In other words, they were to abstain from food that had been offered to idols. They were to abstain from sexual immorality keeping in mind that back in that day, it was pretty disgusting. It was wicked. The sexual immorality often went hand in hand with the pagan worship. And Gentiles were to abstain from things strangled and from blood. So how does this reconcile with the teaching of 1 Corinthians? Because you see, over in 1 Corinthians, we learn that it's okay to eat the meat that had been offered to idols. So how do you bring these two texts together? If God is not the author of confusion, if God is truly the author of every line, every word of the book in our hands, then good grief. How do you bring these two texts together? How do you reconcile? Let me give you the short version. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul had told the church that an idol is really absolutely nothing. There is only one true God, right? Some of the believers in the church of Corinth had just come out of idol worship. So up until this point in time in their lives, to eat this meat was to actually worship a false god. For these new believers in Christ, it deeply bothered them, rightly so. And the focus in 1 Corinthians 8 is brothers and sisters within the body of Christ that were already saved. The focus is on the freedom and liberty we have, while at the same time not providing a stumbling block for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's why Paul said this to the church at Corinth. He said, but food does not commend us to God for neither if we eat, are we the better, nor if we do not eat, are we the worse? But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Meat is meat. Okay. Meat is meat. You got that? It doesn't really help or it doesn't really hurt your relationship with Jesus Christ, but this meat could absolutely become a stumbling block to newer Christians. And in verse 12, Paul tells the church, he says, hey, that when they sin against their brothers and sisters in Christ, by not caring about how their liberty affects other people within the body of Christ, they're not just sinning against other people, they're sinning against Jesus Christ. And then Paul went on to say that out of his love for Christ, he would forgo the freedom he had in Christ for the well-being of the others in the household of faith. And Paul would write of this again when he said in chapter 10, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Important principle in your Christian faith right here. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Meaning, let's say it like this, guys. Just because we have the right to do something doesn't mean that we should. Not all things are helpful. Not all things build up our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And again, the next verse says let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being that's why I struggle when I hear people coming to church and wanting to know what they're going to get out of it we don't go to church for that we go to church to worship God and to edify our brothers and sisters in Christ this should be one of the guiding principles I believe in every church in this land we should seek the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ I wish that was the mantra today Restrain your liberty in Christ for the benefit of your brother and sister in the faith. So in First Corinthians, hear me on this, Paul was dealing mainly with these issues within the body of Christ, but there's a difference in Acts. Notice again, verse 21. He says, "For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in synagogues every Sabbath." 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing believers in the church, telling them they had the right to eat the meat that had been offered to idols, but that they should make sure not to give offense to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Here, James is telling them, abstain, 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 abstain from things polluted by idols with no exception listed. And the difference, I believe, between these two passages is that what James brings out right here in our text in verse 21. That throughout the entire Roman Empire at that time, early on as the church was first spreading, there were synagogues. And in those synagogues, week after week, generation after generation, every Sabbath, Jews would have heard the reading of the laws of Moses, telling them to abstain from eating meat offered to idols. The laws of Moses taught the Jews that meat offered to idols was an abomination. They should have avoided everything that was associated with idolatry. And the strangled meat, what is that? Well, it referred to animals that had been killed in a way that left the blood in it. And for the Jews, all the meat was to be drained of the blood. See, their ancestors had gotten wrapped up in idolatry. No Jew then, therefore, at this time, wanted anything to do with idolatry. So here's the point. If the church wanted to continue, if the church of Jesus Christ wanted to continue to try to reach the Jews with the gospel of Christ throughout the Roman Empire, the church needed to take a step back and realize that they should refrain from these things if they wanted to be able to gain an audience with the Jewish people. Paul would one day teach the church in 1 Corinthians they absolutely had a right to eat the meat offered to idols, unless it was something that was causing a stumbling block for the brother or sister. But at this point in church history, the instruction from the leadership of the church was a complete ban on the food offered to idols because most Jews living throughout the Roman Empire at that time in the synagogues hadn't heard the message of redemption yet. And if they had heard, if they had heard that Christians were sitting there eating meat offered to idols, the Jews would have never listened to the gospel, meaning that our liberty in Christ, it should be restrained by our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and by our love for the lost. Now, you may be wondering how I'm going to get through the end of our text at this point in time in the message. Well, thankfully, the rest of our, our text moves very quickly. With verse 22, we see that the rest of the men were in complete agreement. They would write to the churches and to the church of Antioch, where this entire mess had started in the first place. And then they would send Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Barnabas and Silas. The letter is mostly just review of what we've already read this morning, but let's take the time just to read it real quickly, in verse, starting in verse 23. It says, they wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment, It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that, here it comes, you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. I think it's an amazing thing that the Spirit of God inspired Luke to record this letter. Verse 30 tells us that Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Silas, they came to the church of Antioch. The church assembled. The letter was then read. The church rejoiced that the message of God's grace had been confirmed. The church stood united around the gospel. It encouraged them. And let's look at how we close out the text starting in verse 32. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Judas and Silas, they remained there for some time. Judas was sent back to Jerusalem with greetings from the apostles. I think the King James gets it right in this text, that Judas was sent off with the ancient blessing of shalom, that the peace of God would abide on them. Verse 34 is missing in many of the modern translations, but it teaches us that Silas remained in Antioch, as did Paul and Barnabas, according to verse 35, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. On April the 21st of the year 1519, Spanish explorer Hernando Cortez, he sailed into the harbor that is now Veracruz, Mexico, and he brought with him only 600 men and yet over the next 2 years even though he was continually greatly outnumbered his forces were able to defeat the warriors of the aztec empire allowing cortez to conquer all of mexico now he only had 600 men and two prior expeditions there had failed to even establish a colony on mexican soil So Cortez, he knew from the very beginning that he was going to have to motivate his men. He knew he had to overcome some incredible odds. And he knew that the road before them would be dangerous. It would be difficult. And he knew that his men would be tempted to abandon their mission and return to Spain. So as soon as Cortez and his men had come ashore, he ordered the entire fleet of ships destroyed. And his men stood on the shore and they watched as their only possible retreat just sank that was the only way they could have gotten out of there and they were sinking from that point on his men knew beyond any doubt that there was absolutely no turning back nothing lay behind them but empty ocean their only option was to go forward to conquer or die messages from that story is that retreat is easy when you let yourself have the option retreat is easy when you let yourself have the option And I I see a difference between the, the church in Acts 15 and the church in the West today. You see, the men at the church in Jerusalem, in their letter to the churches, wrote in verse 26 that Paul and Barnabas were men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't see in them men that back down from the gospel of Christ. Not when it came to sharing the message of the coming kingdom of God. Jews and Gentiles, perfectly united by grace, by the Savior, by his love for us. So move forward Christians with the purpose that God has for us and this is what we see in the book of Acts. Men that understood that grace it's a radical concept. Grace is totally formed everything we know and understand in our sinful nature. It is a radical concept and there has always been from day one people who have fought against grace. Men that understood the liberty in Christ they understand that it's an opportunity to stand for grace. That this freedom is not meant to let us live with one foot in the world, looking back to the life that we had before Christ. You see, freedom in Christ means that we have freedom from striving to keep the law, freedom from the wages and bondage of sin, and freedom to serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Written just before Acts 15, Paul told the churches of Galatia, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. This is the heart of a servant, isn't it? And that's the course that's been set before us, going forward with the purpose that God has for the church, knowing that God has a perfect plan for us as the church. God has a perfect plan for Israel. God has a perfect plan for his kingdom, looking to the day when the Savior comes to make all things new.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com.